That's beautiful. Thank you, Jake and Emily. I would ask that you take your Bibles. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start with the 10th verse and go through the 20th verse. We're picking up where Rich left off last week as we're looking at this amazing book that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, this beautiful church that he described last week, deeply significant in the life of Christendom as a whole. And the words that Paul wrote to the Ephesians are very helpful to the church, wherever the church is, and whatever it is uh, that we're facing as a culture. Ephesians 6, verse 10, in just a moment. One of the most helpful concepts in my educational process was the realization that when people come together, and it can be a marriage coming together, it can be a group of people who are starting a business, it can be a a nation coming together and starting a government, it can be a world uh, process coming together. But one of the most interesting concepts is that when people come together, they create a being, a living being, that is more than the sum of the parts of the individual. That being will do things that perhaps no one individual who's a part of that group would have voted for or wanted to occur. And yet the group will do it. Let me give you an an obvious example of that. I do not know anyone, certainly among Christians, but I've never met anyone anywhere who wants there to be poor people. We do not want people to not have enough money to, to buy food and basic housing and and we do not want them to not be able to educate their children and give them the opportunity to live in this uh, complex and increasingly complex world. As individuals, we are very much for every person. And yet, when we get together as human beings and make business decisions and make church decisions and make political decisions... Our synergistic larger power that we're now a part of does in fact create poverty. It does in fact create starvation, racism, illiteracy. Another way of saying it, uh, to put it into kind of more modern language, we talk about systems thinking. How all of us work together in systemic ways that produces outcomes. And so we talk about our economic and political and educational systems that do in fact create economic poverty, racial racism, illiteracy in education, injustice throughout the world. None of us individually would vote for any of those things. And yet when we come together, what we do as a group reinforces that. Now, the, the people who study humanity for thousands of years have caused this phenomenon synergy. It's the actual Greek word that was used by Aristotle about four centuries before Jesus Christ, in which he noticed this phenomenon long ago. And he said, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Kafka, who's uh, the father of Gestalt psychology, Uh, twisted that thought, that ancient philosophical observation, and he says it this way, the whole is other than the sum of its parts. Now that observation from ancient philosophy and modern psychology 
is not new to Christianity. But for us, there's a reality that's greater than just this human synergism where we get together and do things that none of us individually would do. There's a force and a power that is beyond us. Yes, there is synergy. Yes, there is this human problem. Yes, there is this not taking responsibility once we become a part of a group that allows us to, in fact, do things that harm the weakest and the least among us. Yes, human beings do horrible things in the name of power. But we also recognize as Christians that there are powers that work against us as human beings, either individually or as families or as churches or nations or groups. There are forces that work against us that did not originate in humanity. It's a demonic realm, a realm that in fact tries to destroy humanity for its evil purposes. Now Paul describes it this way in the church in Ephesus. And I want you to notice the two tiers of the way that he is describing our problem. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, it is true that these three words that are used, we translate in the NIV, rulers, authorities, powers. In the New American Standard, they reverse it a little bit, say rulers, powers, and world forces of this dark world. That it is true that they mean more than just human synergism in world powers, nations, principalities, and so on, of these world's armed forces. Biblically, these are words that are used to describe levels of the ranks of demons, finally rising to the general of the demons, this world forces, prince of this world, who we also call the devil or Satan. And so it's describing that. But it's also appropriate for us, especially as we understand human systems and how human beings work, to understand that we human beings are capable of being individually and collectively destructive all on our own without spiritual influence trying to destroy us. Our synergy is not the same as spiritual evil that comes from that dark place, but we have systems that are just as dark on their own. They originate with us. Now that reality is something we want to read as we read these words of Paul and his counsel to the church. He's speaking to us and how we're doing our work in, in this, our generation. But I would encourage you to read it in both ways. Read it as, okay, how is this true synergistically as we have established these systems in which we live our lives created by human beings and how is this true spiritually as there is a darkness that wants to destroy humanity? And what can we do to protect and to stand firm when we face any kind of evil wherever it comes from, within, synergistically, or spiritually? So let's go. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 10, and we'll go through verse 20. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand 
against the eat the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, put, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whatever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that Paul spoke so clearly to the church and we're your church we've come together today to receive our marching orders to understand the truth to be able to live in a deeper and larger way speak to each of us in, in whatever place we are within your people and allow each of us to respond give me the courage to speak fearlessly to always speak your truth and of course, we'll give you the praise. Amen. Now, this weaving together of the human synergism and the spiritual darkness that comes upon us, it's interesting that Aristotle had five cardinal virtues. These virtues are what he said, if you lose any one of them, then you lose your humanity. You do not live as humans are intended to live, but rather you live in a subhuman kind of existence. These cardinal virtues, he says, are justice, wisdom, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Now you can read all about this. I encourage you to do so. Go online and look up the cardinal virtues. See how he describes each one. See what he means by the fact that if you don't live with justice, then you are not human as humanity is meant to be lived. We have become something subhuman, and we all feel it when we see and hear and, and participate in any injustice. We feel like we've lost sense of ourselves. But I would suggest that Aristotle's virtues can address the human part, but they're not large enough to describe true spiritual humanity and what life really is about. It's not just about what we can do by our own human effort. It's about what God can do in and through us, both for now and for eternity. That, in fact, we are overbuilt for this world and that we must live by the ways of the eternal realm in order for us to experience the existence of that. So Paul adds to these five human virtues six qualitatively larger aspects. In essence... He uses the analogy of a soldier's army. And he says, these six things protect us from evil. 
whether it comes synergistically from human systems or whether it comes from spiritual forces or from the spirit of another person. These are things that when we face adversity, all adversity, God will be with us. Now, it's helpful to take each of these within the analogy. And I want to apologize from the very beginning that we could take a whole month on each one of these. I encourage you today, talk together, think about them. How is this true and not true? I'm going to give us ways to to articulate them, but this is a large, large, large issue. So take the time to read it. I had somebody after first service say they're going to make this their verse this year. They're going to study it deeply. I would encourage you to to study this deeply. It's a very profound thing. The first that he says, the analogy for truth. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, why does truth protect us synergistically against human systems or spiritually against the occult? Perhaps the better question would be, how does a lie make us vulnerable to synergistic and spiritual evil? Well, if you think of the analogy of a belt, what does a belt do? It holds things in place. Truth keeps things real. That's what the dictionary says. If you look it up, truth corresponds with reality, our language says. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that there are those who are giving up the fact that there can be truth and there can be reality. But a truth connects you to real, to reality. A lie does not. When you disconnect from reality, you suddenly put yourself in a very different relationship with God's created world, with one another, with what is actually happening together. So if we live disconnected, then things begin to fall apart. And if we live connected to truth, then things are held together. So let's think then for a moment just about human systems and spiritual forces. Looking at ourselves, looking at our nation, are things falling apart or are they holding together? And if they are falling apart individually or nationally, then what's the solution to that? Aristotle would say wisdom. We need wisdom at work in all of our human interactions if we're not going to fall apart by losing the truth. Now, we would agree with that. There's nothing that Aristotle says in these, in these uh, cardinal virtues that we would disagree with. We would just say, yes, but whose wisdom? Where do you get wisdom? And how do you know that it is true? 600 years before Aristotle, the Bible and its wisdom literature explain that truth and knowledge and understanding originate with God. It says in the book of Proverbs, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So, truth comes from God, describing true reality in humanity and in the spiritual realm. Without that, we will fall apart. And if we disconnect from truth, then we will find ourselves disintegrating culturally, politically, throughout the world, throughout our families. The second protection is analogous to the breastplate covering the heart. Paul says, stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness, right behavior in place. 
The breastplate, of course, protects the heart. So the question we want to ask is, if righteousness protects the heart, then how do our actions impact us? What does right behavior do to our heart? What does wrong behavior do to our heart? What does right behavior towards another person do to their heart? What does wrong behavior do to their heart? As we analyze this, we recognize that the hearts of people are either righteously cared for or not. And if we're not loving, then what is the solution? Well, Aristotle would say justice. Justice solves righteousness. And we would agree. But justice isn't just a theory for Christians. Justice is righteousness. You can also translate that word justice and righteousness. But righteousness says it better because we're not just talking about in theory we should be a just society. We have to do what's right at every point of every decision and all the systems and all the places in which you and I have responsibility or participate. Justice isn't a theory, it's an action. It's righteousness. The third protection that God offers is to fit our feet so that we can run to peace rather than run to conflict. Shoes are an interesting kind of protection, aren't they? You don't usually think of a shoes as a, as a piece of armor. But the, the paths that lead to peace are seldom the barefoot paths of soft, sandy soil walking to a nice beach. Peace takes a jagged climb up cliffs that are so difficult that if we're going to find some solution to this human proclivity to violence and conflict, we're going to have to have shoes that are fitted for that purpose, the special shoes that God gives us to do it. So to analyze this, let's just think synergistically and let's think nationally. Synergistically, as a nation, are we following or taking the path toward peace? And what does that jagged climb look like for us as a nation and as you, for you and me individually? Aristotle would say prudence. And we'd agree. But what is prudence? How do you decide what's prudent to do? Is appeasing evil prudent? What does it look like long-term to be prudent when evil has designs? And if peace, the shalom of God, is something far greater than just not having fights and conflict, but it means a positive regard towards others such that we want their well-being as much as we want ours and our children, then what, where does that peace come from? Where does that change of heart come such that we step out of our systems and we enter into God's system of all human beings being our brothers and sisters of infinite worth to God and therefore to us? What kind of shoes do we walk? What kind of paths do we walk? if we're going to find that kind of peace in our homes, in our workplaces, let alone in the international uh, relations. The fourth protection, Paul says, is faith. Faith that can stop flaming arrows from evil. It's interesting that the analogy that, that uh, Paul uses here to describe faith, he suggests that it's like a shield, that faith extinguishes 
the arrows of unbelief and doubt and distrust and skepticism and suspicion that thrown at us continually through all kinds of sources, especially the media. Looking at the this synergistic being that we call America, of which we're all a part, but it's so much greater than the sum of the parts, let's ask ourselves, are we basically living with faith or doubt? Trust or suspicion? Belief or skepticism? What life is being lived by this power that we've created? And if you say that we are living in the shadow of suspicion and disbelief, then what's the solution? Aristotle would say fortitude. We just need to keep on keeping on, press through, don't give up. That ability to keep going in the face of adversity. Now we wouldn't disagree with that. We need fortitude. But as Christians, we don't just live with this dogged determinism that we're going to face whatever it is and we're going to keep on keeping on. We live with a faith-filled reality in which we believe that we are watched over by a loving God that is going to work all things together. And we do not let doubt and distrust and disbelief become our lives. We live with faith in the faith in our Creator and our God that he has ultimate good intention. That, of course, leads us to the fifth protection, and that is salvation that guards our minds. Here the analogy is that of a helmet, something that keeps the mind from being injured such that we cannot contemplate an intelligent designer who created an amazing world or a moral savior that would enter into our experience so that we could find forgiveness and we could make a new way out of a bad path. If we cannot contemplate what that would be like and, and what it's possible for us to live, then our brains have become damaged. It's fascinating to me that we've created this synergistic culture in America where God's love and His creative power is suspect. God's love and His creative power is suspect by our synergistic culture. People are encouraged to choose godlessness rather than a creator and a savior. Now, why would that be? Why would people be encouraged to live just as though there is no God and this is all there is and this body I must please and I could do whatever I want or I should do whatever I want, grab for it for the temporal moment? Aristotle said that when we lose our temperance, when we lose control of these appetites and these desires, that we will lose our humanity, that we'll cease to be the creatures that we could be, and we will live at just a, a, a physical, animalistic level. Now, we would agree with that as Christians. We would agree with his estimation. But the solution is putting God at the center such that our thoughts are oriented around who he is and what he's doing in the world and not who I am and it's all about me. You've probably seen the Chumash uh, advertisement that's been coming out where it's, the tagline is, it's all about you. Yeah. The final protection is something that has no parallel 
in Aristotle's admonition because it is something that comes into the world from the Creator Savior who formed us and wants to be with us. It describes something that humanity, no matter how much we might try, cannot produce. It is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the revealed truth that God gives us that is beyond human reach. Synergistically and spiritually, there is nothing that impacts our world like the Bible. That is why when anything starts getting away from scriptural truth, the tendency, even among the church, is to simply remove the Bible and grab some other moral thought or moral idea or some social justice that is in fact going to replace the Bible's truth about who we are and how we're created and how God is at work within us. The Bible speaks to the heart. It speaks to the mind. It speaks to our actions. It speaks to our hopes. It reveals truth from God to a people through a sword that cuts both ways, both within us and within society as a whole, the synergistic holes that we're a part of. It cuts through confusion and cuts through the tumors that plague both our body and the body uh, politic. Now, Paul ends, of course, by calling us to prayer. Everything that he's described in all of these components require God at work within us to give us truth and faith and righteousness and hope, to let us live a life that is beyond this human effort existence that we might think, as Aristotle did, would keep our humanity. It's far larger and broader than that, and we need prayer. We're going to do that right now. I don't know what God has said to you. There might be a piece of armor that as we look through, you realize, I haven't put that on. It's not a, an important part of my spiritual formation, my journey, my daily prayer, my experience. And you might be saying, I want to put that on. I, I want to have my mind protected. I want my heart protected. I want my action protected. I want to be guided by God. If that's so, if God's spoken to you now, I encourage you in this moment to simply pray the prayer that God would put on that armor on your soul and on your life. If it's something where you realize that you have not been standing up when it's been asked of you to stand in the presence of evil on that day, I encourage you to pray that God will give you a fearlessness to be lovingly appropriate in your standing for God and His truth. So let's spend time with God. Please stand.
Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and Thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure Thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Please allow me to bless you. May you, the people of God, who have experienced this amazing, transformative love of God, and who live by his truth, fully protected by his armor, be able to stand clearly and fully in this world such that you are instruments of his peace, a peace that goes far beyond just the stopping of evil, but in fact, the giving of life. Amen. Ha, ha, ha.